Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we've got going on over at blisterreview.com. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Julian Carr, who is a professional skier and world record cliff jumper, the founder of Discreet Clothing, and the founder and race director of the Cirque Series, which is a group of six big mountain running events held at some spots that skiers all know very well. Brighton, Alta, Alieska, Sun Valley, Arapahoe Basin, and Snowbird. This is a pretty amazing conversation I have with Julian, and it really falls into four parts. So you are welcome to skip around or jump into any of those four sections if you want. Just check out the topics and times notes on your phone or in the show notes of this episode. But honestly, my advice is to just listen start to finish, because as you will see, all of the stuff we talk about is actually quite interconnected. First, Julian and I talk about the Cirque Series, which kicks off this coming weekend on June 30th at Brighton, Utah. And you might assume that the race director of the Cirque Series probably is a pretty serious runner. But Julian doesn't really consider himself to be a runner at all, but rather someone who simply loves to be in the mountains and enjoys becoming more and more adept at moving in the mountains. And that discussion about not really identifying as a runner makes up the second part of our conversation. Then there's part three, where Julian and I drill down pretty deep on the thing that many of you probably most associate Julian with, dropping impossibly huge cliffs on skis. Julian has sent many hundred plus foot cliffs, and he is the world record holder for the biggest inverted cliff jump ever at 210 feet. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a second because I've been thinking about this a lot. Last year, the climber Alex Honnold melted our minds with his free solo of Freerider on El Capitan because one little mistake, just one slip, would mean certain death. But while Honnold is all about having the confidence and skill to not fall and hit the ground, there is a fall and an impact every single time Julian jumps. His projects involve hitting the ground every single time. Every leap comes with an impact. So it's about having the confidence, the skill set, and the proper mindset to, in his words, stare down the barrel of each cliff, commit to the leap, then mitigate the impact of the massive drop. If, for some reason, the weight and the consequence of these feats still isn't sinking in, just go to the show notes of this episode on the Blister website to watch videos of several of the jumps that Julian and I discuss, including his 210-foot world record jump in Switzerland. And once you try to wrap your mind around what must be required to get yourself in the headspace to fly off of these cliffs, then I think Julian's account in our conversation here might start to make a whole lot more sense. We then wrap up with part four, where Julian and I circle back to Big Mountain Running and the Cirque series, then talk a bit about Julian's company Discreet, which is now celebrating its 10th anniversary. So whether you are a committed runner looking to learn about the Cirque series, or a non-runner who wants to hear the case for mountain running, or you want to hear about overcoming fear and the psychological limitations that we impose on ourselves, or whether you want to hear an entrepreneur talk about how his company has evolved over the past decade, this conversation has a whole lot to offer. And so, with that lengthy intro out of the way, let's go ahead and get started, and here is Julian Carr. 
Julian, how are you today? Good, man. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Um, where are you today? I am in beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. Okay. This conversation is actually long overdue, uh, and so uh, I'm I'm pleased to be speaking with you, and particularly happy to be talking with you right now because we are just on the cusp of the launch of the Cirque series. Um, why don't we go ahead and I just want to have you uh, begin with um, what is the Cirque series and maybe touch on a little bit on how that got started. Cool. Uh, Cirque series is a short distance max elevation gain mountain running series. Um, that's kind of the the short description. We, I, I fell in love with boot packing up mountains and skiing them as a skier and living by the trailhead of Mount Olympus and hiking it a ton. And I looked into the trail run race scene to find a, a race that was similar to racing up Mount Olympus and back down, which is around, you know, four, four or five, six miles with three or 4,000 vertical feet. And I was shocked that all I could find were these 100-mile races uh, that go through the mountains or mud runs or Spartans, um, relay races, and all that stuff's awesome. But I was like, man, where is the race to the top of Mount Olympus and back down? Um, and the only thing I could find was up in Alaska. There's this really cool race called Mount Marathon. Hmm. And that's actually just like a 2.3-mile race. And it has 3,000 vertical feet. And it's been going on for like 70 years and 3,000 people do it. It's on the 4th of July. The whole town of like Seward comes out. And that was like, that's the only one that's even close to what the idea is. Um, so I was on a really cool trip in Iceland uh, four years ago. And we, you know, hiked to the top of this beautiful um, mountain and skied a shoot. But up on the top, we were like overlooking the... Arctic Ocean and it was beautiful. Hiked up there with my own two feet for three or four hours and I had a few moments to myself and I was like, man, I'm going to go home and start a mountain running series. And so that was in March. And so three years ago in August, so just five months after that moment in Iceland, we launched our first season and we had three races in Utah and one in Colorado that, that first year. Um, and we averaged about a hundred people per race, which was awesome. I was stoked on it. And now we're going obviously into our fourth season right now. And we just sold out Brighton a few days ago at 500 runners, um, hmm. races in Colorado, uh, Sun Valley and Alaska. So we have six races this season and they're all looking like they're going to sell out. And it's just really fun to, you know, continue on with, the passion in the mountains because uh, I really love skiing. I love the mountains. I've always loved hiking. I love being in the high alpine. And it's really fun for me to have something that um, kind of, you know, I'm at capacity for all my skills I've developed to, you know, administer a business uh, from founding Discreet Clothing about 10 years ago. And all the marketing involved and the production skills to be a professional skier, um, combining all this comprehensive skill set, uh, I've been able to just 
concentrate it into Cirque series, and I feel like we're just doing it right, right out of the gate. And it's pretty fun because there's quite a few long-time runner types uh, that have done all kinds of races for decades, and or people that are actually in event production, and they'll do some of our races, and they're like, that was really fun and <laughs> well-produced. They're like, how did you put this together out of seemingly nowhere? Because uh, it's kind of cool because most people in that space definitely aren't familiar with me or what discreet or anything. So to them, they're just like, where in the world did this series come from? Um, <laughs> so it's just fun to have that acumen uh, and experience and to be able to funnel it into, like I was saying, just another extension of the passion and, and the love I have for the mountains. Huh. It's interesting to think about the fact that, as you said, like, you know, these these kind of quote-unquote races or endurance races – it's a little weird when you when you step back and think about the fact that yeah they they're a lot of them are super long or they involve all of this like mud and obstacle course stuff and do you have a good explanation for why series like these weren't more common like the Cirque series where it's like well how about we don't make it 100 miles and how about we don't incorporate a jungle gym in the middle of it or a huge wall like it's just running in mountains why didn't this already exist well it's funny because our very first race when I was beginning to market it I actually heard from quite a few people in the running space and the running community that they thought you know paying fifty dollars for a registration fee for a race that was only six miles was absurd hmm. so i think in the running world um a longer race to them warrants a registration fee so i think that was the hurdle hmm. was that anything that was under 10 miles was just simply considered too short and not worth the money so I just had a clear vision because I'd been hiking Mount Olympus so much and I knew that you could have a full, you know, books worth and 20 chapters worth of an experience in hiking a mountain that's 3,000 vertical feet. And yeah, it might only take you round trip two or three hours, but there's certainly a massive adventure in that experience. And so I just trusted my gut and had a clear vision of this isn't just going to attract runners. This is going to attract all walks of life. And, mm. you know, it was fun to put that to the test and also encounter those other perspectives that were used to finding the value in longer races. And like I said, I think that's awesome. And I think those races are cool. Um, but it's nice to see that my original vision uh, is definitely aligning with a lot of people. Hmm. Yeah, we were... We were talking previously, and uh, two things I think were quite interesting is you just very bluntly said, like, dude, I'm, I'm not a runner. And you, I think the other thing you said was, I don't, I don't really consider this like a mountain race. It's like it's a mountain adventure. And so talk to me a little bit about, about that, because it does seem like, it seems like you mean this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never been a guy that, laces up my shoes and goes for a five mile run in the morning in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, I like to hike, I like running, I guess, but I'm just not a runner. So to anybody else that 
you know, sees me out hiking or doing these trail runs, you know, it's quote unquote trail running to them. But mm-hmm. to me, I'm on a mountain adventure. And that's what I think is so cool is that there's, you know, a huge amount of people that are going up into these same mountains in the winter and skiing by the, by the millions. And so we're going up into those same high alpine locations and, you know, you're scrambling, you're using all you got to hike up to the peak as fast as you can. And, you know, it's a mountain adventure in all respects. So it's neat to see runner types come out because it challenges what they're used to. Uh, lots of bros like me come out because we love that kind of a thing. And then there's tons of entry-level trail runners that are probably destined to go out and do some ultras. But, you know, this is a nice first step um for for that next elite level uh Mm -hmm. so we see uh i mean it's crazy we've had ages 11 through 67 so far we've had olympians and all kinds of different professional athletes from all all kinds of um you know broad range of sports so to have an event that it makes sense for all those people to be there from 11 year old to olympian to you know mom and dad and even grandpa and everybody has a blast, you know, it's, it's pretty fun environment to be in and celebrate everybody. And we're all going to an obvious iconic summit. We're all putting it to our red line and we're all feeling that primal sense of accomplishment of hitting that peak. And when you come into that finish line, it's such a cool shared sense of that accomplishment and joy. And we love to celebrate the winners and you know, we got great cash prizes and awesome sponsors and we do the whole thing, but we definitely are all about just the all inclusivity. Whereas I think a lot of existing ultra runs and there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of cool people, but there's definitely some elitism and Hmm. it's all about who's the fastest and all that. And of course we love to celebrate those people, but, uh, we're all about just that shared experience. So before we get too deep in this, I want to just get people clear on some of the logistics here. So my understanding is for this season, we've got it's six. The Cirque Series is is happening. There's six events, correct? Correct. And um, I think we go Brighton on June 30th, Alta, July 14th, Alieska, Alaska on August 5th. Sun Valley, Idaho, August 11, Arapahoe Basin, Colorado, August 18, and then back at Snowbird to wrap on September 8. That's a pretty that's a pretty nice list. Yeah, it's definitely some iconic places and you know, from a from a fan of the races, I'm I'm the biggest fan of these races and that's was the original reason why I even wanted to create them was because I wanted a race that was like this. Hmm. So I've ran all my races up to this point, and to be able to experience all these mountains that I've skied in the winter, then suddenly have a whole new way to get to know the mountain, um, it's really neat just to add that to my mountain fluency and to create the courses and to work with each mountain's um, mountain operation team, their marketing team, their safety board. Um, so it's it's a fun uh study on personalities as well and the way each mountain runs their mountain and Hmm. how we can construct a cool course because i love the 
most direct, intuitive path to the summit. I'm not going to make people go straight up some unnecessary hill when there's like a pretty obvious, intuitive way to skirt around it. But I'm also not going to go on a switchback if it makes you take way longer than it should. We're going to go straight up instead. Um, so to be able to partner with all these amazing, uh, iconic destinations is obviously an honor. And, um, you know, to me, I'm like, I want more. I want to have races in the Northwest. I want to have a race in Tahoe. I want to have a race in the East. I want to have a race in Europe. You know, it's like, I have to just slow down because it takes, like I said, I'm at capacity to be the race director and really throw quality event. And I don't want any quality control to suffer by trying to add on too many races too fast. So I'm just really excited about these six races and Brighton's a new race this year. Uh, course is incredible and Sun Valley's a new location this year. And then the other four are repeats, and I just really want to hone in and just execute these six races, crush them, and, you know, once the fall comes around, we can look at if we want to just remain where we're at, because we feel like that was what we want to do, or if we feel like we could, you know, add maybe one or two on the front or back end, but um, right now, like I said, the six has me at capacity, and, and those six mountains are really cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm way fired up. So how has the series evolved? I mean, in, you know, not just in the sense of you've added some more spots, but how much has changed or how much has stayed the same and yet you're just expanding it out? As far as course design, not much has changed. Um, originally, I had the races start at 1 or 3 p.m. so that you can finish into kind of that prime operate hour. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, you know, even though once you get up into the high alpine, the temps are fine, but down in that base area, and I think just mentally, when it's 90 degrees in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we're throwing a race, you know, to a lot of people, they see a 3 p.m. start time, and to them, they just feel heat. Yeah. <laughs> even though once you get up there and you're in the high alpine, it's actually quite pleasant, but I've moved all the start times up to uh, 10 a.m., and I've heard a lot of people that are really fired up about that. So I think that was a, a crucial change. Um, but other than that, um, they're still the same same recipe. Get to the, the top of the mountain as fast as you can and bring in great brands um, and have a great party and good music, good professional announcer, and then celebrate. Hmm. <clears throat> That's pretty cool. Do you have any sense of... Uh that one of those particular locations that we've named is going to sort of be the most challenging course or conversely, like one of the most, one of the spots we've named you suspect might be the like most mellow. Well, you know, they're, they're each, that's probably like asking, you know, a parent. <laughs> right. They're smartest. <laughs> yeah. And just like any kid, one happens to be better at science and the other one's more of an artist or whatever. Like each course is, you know, equally as cool. Um, I will say Brighton I'm really excited about because we have four summits that we hit 
in only a 6.7 mile loop and it has 3,000 vertical feet. So we start at the base uh, Brighton Center there and we head up Millie and we go up Millie Peak mm-hmm. and that's a really fun scramble through a really big boulder uh, field to, to gain the, the summit and then we head back and we're pretty much heading towards Wolverine and you turn left and you hit Tuscarora and that's beautiful and you have insane views and then you go down to Catherine's Pass and then you go up to Sunset Peak and Sunset Peak you see back into Heber, you see Timpanogos, you see Devil's Castle, hmm. um, you see you know Lake Catherine, Lake Mary and all of Big Cottonwood and then you drop um, down onto Pioneer Ridge and then you hit Pioneer Peak. And then you run to the top of Crest Chair and then back down to where we started. So for only a 6.7 mile race to hit four summits, yeah, it's pretty, pretty sick. And you kind of encounter every type of terrain along the way. Um, and it is fun because, you know, it is a mountain adventure. And I will say it's pretty fun for me as a race director when I see really runner types come and they actually don't quite know what they're getting themselves into (laughs) yeah because i'll see them in the start line kind of stretching out and they got their mini shorts on i love all the mini shorts i always get a lot of crap from a lot of these runner guys that i'm becoming friends with because i always rock basketball shorts yeah and they always give me so much (laughs) and i'm like whatever man you guys are rocking the daisy dukes i'm like we gotta we gotta find the middle ground but I'll see them after the race, and they're like, oh, my gosh, man. <laughs> I don't ski or snowboard, and the way we dropped off the top there, he's like, oh, my life flashed before my eyes. I, that was crazy. <laughs> I'm like, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Alyeska is nuts. There's really, really wild moments um, when you're scrambling and sense of exposure and uh, just the the Alaska vibes, you know, because that one's 5.9 miles and it's 3,800 vert. Um, so that one packs a punch. And all the rest of the races are very cool too. So obviously, like I mentioned, we're really excited that we're sold out for Brighton, but uh, we're we still got plenty of spots in all the other races. And um, yeah, I definitely urge even people that were fired up on maybe checking out Brighton come up. Because we got the vendor village going all day and tons of people bring their families up and there's lots of just spectating going on. And you can actually see a lot of people out on the ridges in a silhouette form from the vendor village. So it's still definitely a cool hangout, even if you're interested but not ready to dive in and actually do it. Yeah, just come up and hang out. You uh, are probably known by most people uh, for your skiing and you are probably known as a skier. I mean, that's probably... Uh, that's the uh, the noun most people would probably attach with you. And so I definitely want to talk a bit about running in general and your relationship to running, but also how this kind of factors in a bit with skiing. And it, it's so funny because a lot of the things that you are saying, in particular, like running in basketball shorts, like I, I actually just published a running shoe review on Blister. And one of the sort of problems was like I'm often running in a pair of like XL or double XL shorts. And so the pictures just looked a little weird because <laughs> these big shorts are kind of flapping everywhere. And and as I keep trying to think about my own relationship with running and like you, I would never call myself a runner. And yet, you know, I run 
two, three, four times a week, maybe maybe that is in of itself. I think you've landed on the definition. Like if you run in basketball shorts, you're maybe not a runner. Where <laughs> if you That's a good parameter for the definition, I think. I think it might be Let's as, go with it. as simple as that. But uh let's back it up a bit to um you grew up either in Salt Lake or or around Salt Lake? Yeah, born and raised in Salt Lake City. I grew up in the uh, the avenues. Okay. And so just a bit more on kind of the early days for you, what were you doing as a kid? I mean, did you immediately catch the ski bug or were you interested in kind of the more mainstream sports thing? What what was kind of your path? Uh, pretty random, really. But um, I grew up doing lots of uh, basketball, soccer, and football. Mm-hmm. And even my dad coached a lot of my little league teams, and we did traveling teams. And I really love and still love those sports. And uh, I also got my first skateboard when I was around one years old and learned how to, you know, butt board down my steep streets and the avenues and how to read all the cracks. And pretty soon I was standing up and navigating down like these steep pretty awesome streets and even my neighbors were coming over and like chatting with my parents because they're like uh you're like three-year-old is standing up flying down these roads and the avenues like oh he's fun he's but so it's fun to (laughs) love skateboarding which is kind of this counterculture especially back then sport Mm -hmm. um and the you know traditional quote-unquote jock sports and uh, and all the while, I was, uh, you know, going to lots of UNA camping missions, lots of Southern Utah trips, camping with my family, and a lot just with me and my dad. And, uh, you know, camping under, um, we hardly used a tent. And my dad is a, uh, like, published poet, so he would read his poems or his friends' poems or his favorite books to me as I fell asleep, like, looking up at the infinity of space and all the trillions of stars and I think that sense of kind of boundaryless uh, type of imagination and just that instilling that sense of infinity in me as a kid really I think guided uh, where I've ultimately ended up as a skier and some of the things I do on my skis because I just feel like I had that instilled in me and Luckily, I'd been doing a lot of sports my whole life, so the athleticism was there, and obviously skiing takes a lot of that, so I was lucky, but um, the the clincher here is that I did a lot of gymnastics, too, so I was <laughs> constantly doing like summer camps and gymnastics, and um, I wish I could find some of my old coaches because I hardly ever would actually go practice um, any of like the categories because I always just wanted to play in the foam pit. And I I would like climb up into the rafters when they weren't looking. Um, I would just have these elaborate things that all culminated in just foam pit activities. And so um, in fifth grade, I tried snowboarding and I had a lesson at noon. The earliest, like me and my friend's parents could drop us off was at around nine. My mom was like, just go in the lodge, hang out, do not try to snowboard until the lesson at noon. And I'm like, yep, yep, yep. And then, of course, we go sit there for half an hour, and then me and my buddy are like, let's go take a run. So that first run, I had a pretty good crash and 
sprained my knee, got crutches for a while in fifth grade, and then went back to my, my usual sports. And then in eighth grade, my mom is a skier, and she kept telling me I need to come uh, skiing with her. And, you know, being a skateboarder, skiing just instantly didn't align with me. But she was convincing to the point where I think to make her happy, I was like, <laughs> all right, mom, I'm going to go ski with you. And I'm sure glad she did because, hmm. you know, by the end of the first day, just that feeling of gliding and, and traveling around with no engine and, you know, the body stance, uh, you know, just watching people from the chairlift, man, it just clicked. I, I mean, I, I literally fell in love with skiing in one day. And... Hmm. By my third day, I was hauling ass, and I, I think I even got pulled over by patrol for going too fast. And uh, in ninth grade, I was really good friends with this kid, Rich Peterson, and he's uh, one of the lead guides up at CPG in Girdwood in Alaska now. But he's one of the best uh, sound technique just skiers ever, and I was lucky enough that I skied with him every day. My that first year in ninth grade and um luckily so chasing him around and getting to his level as fast as I could really also helped but my point is once I realized how cool powder was and felt the you know and understood wow there's like a hundred plus inches of base and it's on a slope and I'm traveling fast and when it snows a lot like whoa, the mountains, when it's deep and in the winter, I live next to the coolest foam pit in the world. That's like exactly where my head went when I learned like the properties of powder. And so that took me on my path to finding a five-foot cliff and then figuring out how to be comfortable with that. And, you know, I've, I've figured it out now that it sounds crazy, but I'm comfortable with the really big cliffs I do. And it's been just a baby step progression. And it all started in eighth grade. Speaking of the big cliff hucks, I'm kind of curious what your relationship with, uh, let's say, that sport is these days. Do you still feel like this is something that you are figuring out? Is this something that you're still kind of passionate about mastering or do you feel like you know that's been a really important process and learning process and and an important part of who you are and your identity but do you see kind of a shift changing there where where are you in relationship to uh jumping off massive ridiculous uh sized cliffs <laughs> well it's definitely a good question and I've forced myself to think about that sometimes but really once it gets into winter mode um i'm really committed and really passionate about and it's not so much the idea of big cliffs it's putting myself in the position that cool things can happen and that's kind of where the the criteria lies and once i stop having passion to put myself in the position that cool things can happen, that's when they don't happen. Um, but, you know, right now, when the winter comes around, I'm paying attention all over the world to where the best snow is falling. I'm paying attention to locally my favorite spots and 
paying attention to the snow and the snowpack and snow quality and you know when those days come around that all the stars align um i still find big cliffs really beautiful and i still mm -hmm. love the mental assessment uh and relationship spiritually it takes to um you know stare one of those beasts down um <laughs> and and figure it out and uh you know, every year I've put myself in the position and the stars have aligned that um, I've been able to get some pretty big ones every year for, I mean, it's been a good decade now, which is insane, but yeah, um, I still love it and I still put myself in the position. Um, and this last year I had gone on a trip I do with all my friends from college um, to Targi. We do it every year. And while I was there... It was snowing, it was deep, they have really fun cliffs there, and the next week uh, I was going to go to Colorado for a project, um, and you know they've been having a pretty bad winter, especially in southwest Colorado where I was going, and I called up the production crew and I was like, you guys, like, you guys have three other athletes, how crucial is it that I'm there on this thing because it's supposed to snow another 30, 40 inches in Targi, and I was just there, I'd love to go back and line some things up so they're like oh yeah of course we're, we're totally good here and it's really you know not that great but we're, we're getting the shots we need and we're having a blast go have fun so i bolted straight up to targi called up owen leeper and he's another skier that loves cliffs and called up greg von dorstein great photographer and my girlfriend jenna rogers is an up-and-coming photographer and so the four of us just went berserkers at Targi and, you know, a couple of the cliffs after we hit them, we measured, you know, we're 80, 90 feet. And we, I think over the course of four days, it snowed 59 inches Wow! on top of what was already pretty good when I was there the week before. And, um, I think we jumped like something nuts, like 15 or 16 cliffs and even did wow. some tandem and Targi's just a Mecca, but it's because I'd put myself in the position, passionate, and knew that my opportunity for the year to find some bigger cliffs that were good to go was going back to Targi because everywhere else I was paying attention to, it wasn't happening. And mm -hmm. the year before that, one of my favorite cliffs I've ever hit is in the Wasatch here in, in Wolverine. There's a you know 100, 150 footer, depending on the year. And... About eight or nine years ago, I hit it four times in one year. It was just an amazing winter. And it's it's uh, one of my favorites. And every year, I pay attention to that cliff. And for seven or eight years, it was a no-go every single year because of the way the snowpack uh, happened. And so hmm. two years ago, finally, it all happened the right way. So I was able to, to do that one again, which is awesome. You know, that one's good 110, 120 feet. Um, and the year before that, you know, there's some other ones that worked out and it's, it's that passion to, to be aware of when your opportunities come. And, um, for whatever reason, I just think big cliffs are really beautiful. I think they're fascinating. I think snow is a miracle. Yeah. I love the feeling of mentally pursuing them, finding that deep sense of, you know, hyper awareness uh, and that relationship 
with the, the mountain and the sky and who I am. And I think it roots back to the sleeping under the stars my whole life and having that sense of uh, transcending boundaries because I see the pictures of what I do and even sometimes um, I'll like wake up from a napper, you know, I'm like, wow, how in the world am I this guy? How, how am I that guy? You know, cause it is, it's, it's, it's nuts. But, um, I found this cool little cheat code and it's, it's something I really love doing. I love the process and I know most people can't believe it, but it, you know, once I've gone through my due diligence and I achieve that sense of meditation and, um, you know, it's a beautiful experience. It's very spiritual and I don't feel the landing. And that's the coolest part because it's uh, a magical thing that, that transpires. And it's funny because I'll meet people and they're like, you know, so used to the Mountain Dew, Red Bull mentality, just sack up and do it. And mm -hmm. that's what most people assume uh, I am. <laughs> and it's just crazy because I'll meet people and they'll be like, man, do you even check the landings? And I'm like looking at them like, you're literally calling me an idiot to my face. Like, are you serious? Yeah. You know, but I get it because when I'm not in the moment and I do see the pictures or I do see the video, it does look just insane. You know, and it does look violent. It does look like it probably hurt. It does look like it might have a borderline stupidity to it. And it's just really not that for me. And I get that. Um, there's all kinds of ways to view and have opinion on, on what I do. But to me, it's so profound and so spiritual that I, I love doing it time and time again and year after year. And I'm, I'm still madly in love with it. There's a part of me that's, you know, you, I love that you said you feel like you found the cheat code. And I'm not asking you to give up the cheat code, but I, but I am curious. I mean, I, I, I'd feel remiss if I didn't ask, you know, in terms of the blueprint, when, you know, you said, um, you're talking about Wolverine, that it just things, the snow didn't line up the right way for seven or eight years in your thought process, how much of it is like there is this first part in the checklist or these first two things in the checklist for you personally always have to be in place or we don't even move on to thinking further about this. Is it that um, blueprinted for you? Definitely. Uh, there's, the three-step protocol that once these three things are checked off, then I can move into the mental, meditational, spiritual landscape that ultimately decides uh, to proceed or not. But the first three checklist is landing. Is the landing 100%? And, you know... 99 times out of 100 it's not and so you know i've seen i've seen thousands of big cliffs that i loved and the landing just isn't good enough um or it is but there's not enough snow or the forecast doesn't look just right or i was a day late or there's one tree or oh man there's like this one weird layer so the landing so if the landing checks out that's always the first number two is sheerness how sheer is this cliff Mm -hmm. um, and my confidence to land in the sweet spot that I just investigated and gave the 100%. So if the sheerness is 100% and the landing is 100%, then it's the takeoff. Is the takeoff 100%? Are 
Are there any little rocks that are hiding underneath the surface that are going to grab my skis? Are there trees on the takeoff? Is there a cornice above me? Is it too steep? And there's going to be snow moving. Mm -hmm. So when I actually go off, there's going to be a ton of snow coming off with me. Uh, there's just so many factors that come into play for each one of those to be 100%. And it's fueled by fear. Like a lot of people are like, are you just fearless? And it's like, no, I, I have a lot of fear. Like big cliffs are super scary, but mm -hmm. I don't... Um, choose to like obey that fear because there's all kinds of stuff that's scary but physically can you do it is it possible and that's what I kind of try to concentrate on I'm like I didn't come up to this cliff to ask myself or figure out if it was scary yes it's scary mm -hmm. uh, I came out here to figure out if it's physically possible and from me being fueled, uh, you know, critical concentration goes into these assessments, obviously, because it's your life. And I'm fueled to think critically by fear and by critically assessing the landing and deeming it 100% takes an, an immense amount of uh, my entire lifetime and breadth of mountain fluency and knowledge to make that kind of assessment to know that the landing is 100 percent. i love life i love my health and mm -hmm. that's you know my number one in life is health and happiness so to deem a landing to be 100 percent, that takes a lot you know it takes a yeah. lot of a uh, you know gusto to make that kind of decision but it's fueled by fear like i was saying to think that critically and then once i am able to find that 100%, that fear is actually converted into confidence, supreme confidence. And then the sheerness, you know, there's a little less fear. It's more confidence. And then by the time the takeoff is 100%, I'm mostly confident at this point. That fear is evaporating. Um, and then I enter into the, you know, how are the stars aligned today and how do how is my relationship with that cliff at that moment where how are my cells and my molecules charged how am i able to become present how am i able to think and be with the rock and the sky and the trees and my skis and my body and my mind and and my body mechanics and the snow beneath me and and how am i going to pre-visualize and live and like be so immersed in the moment that all I can say is that when I've read like really cool recounts of uh, like monks and they say where they can take themselves mentally, it's really neat when I hear them because I'm like, oh, I know that. I know that space. And so I get into this hyper-present, hyper-aware state of um, being absolute like hyper connected through I don't know if you want to say it's like the electromagnetic spectrum but I am fused with the sky and the super rich highway of interconnectedness of my skis and the cliff and the sky and the landing and I'm so present that by the time I do it it's supreme and 100% awareness and confidence and, and connection to the cosmos and when when I achieve that that's when it's go time and that's when I'm and that's when I'm able to pull these things off and it's really fun like I said to take those first steps to mentally assess and then enter into that spiritual realm and if you can have the mental discipline to 
stare down the, the barrel. I've always felt that anybody can proceed down this path, but I also understand that it's a pretty fierce mental uh, comfortableness in, in the ability to stare something down like that because, you know, the biggest cliff I've done now is like 210 feet and it wasn't just this cliff I came up to and was like, oh, that's 210 feet, I want to do it. It was a cliff that I found that was beautiful and I developed a relationship with it. And then afterwards, obviously, I'm curious. And obviously, you know, I've collected baseball and football cards my whole life. I love stats. So now to live my life as a human and as if you were to say I have my own baseball card, it's kind of rad to have a stat like a world record for biggest cliff invert at 210 feet. Like, mm -hmm. of course, we're all interested in those things, but those aren't the things that draw me to these things. It's the that spiritual and, and mental uh, relationship. And then the afterwards, when you actually do make sense of it all, and then you relay it in terms that, you know, are relevant in today's professional media landscape. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I think you can do any cliff of any height physically, but mentally, you know, to like go size up a 300 footer, I have no doubt that physically I could do it. I just don't know. And it's terrifying to think of me going out, seeing a beautiful cliff and finding that reservoir of, of my soul to connect on a project like that, you know, hmm. that is intimidating. That mentally might be too much. Mm -hmm. Um, I might be scared of that, you know, but physically, absolutely. Um, but if you just went out and did it, you'd probably encounter a lot of problems or you might die. You might get internal bleeding. You might land wrong. You know, like you can't just sack up and do that stuff. Um, it, it takes much more than that. And, it's luckily been the strange lifetime of, you know, doing front flips into foam pits or off my trampoline as a kid my whole life and just knowing how to do a front flip forever and mm -hmm. knowing how to relax and be water and be still and be calm the whole time in the air so that when I land, there's a non-collision, it's a non-impact. And to have that mental connectivity that kind of masterminds that whole admin of that it's uh it's definitely something that i love and i cherish and again like i said i'll be out there sometimes in the middle of figuring stuff out and i'm still even though i'm entering this really cool spiritual space i'm very much present and it's just strange every once in a while because i'll see the other athletes are super nervous the photographers beyond nervous everyone's <laughs> pretty fucking freaked out and yeah. i'm just you know focused on my process and it's just so weird because I'm like, man, how in the world did I become this person? How am I this guy, you know? I think that was really well said. And to back up one of the things you said where, you know, you said, I think someone could jump from any height, like physically they could. And I think we know that's true, right? I mean, we've, we've, there are instances where people have jumped out of airplanes, shoots have failed to open and they've survived, right? Impacts with the ground. So it, you're like, this is a fact. You're right. Like, I don't think there is a limit where physically it wouldn't be possible. Um, so I think you're a hundred percent right to point to the, to the mental. I want to ask, I wonder whether I am, um, 
overstating or understating how important it is to be as close to absolutely relaxed as possible upon impact. Like, is it a massive deal or actually is it way more important that you have properly assessed like the firmness of the snow, the snowpack? No, you're right. You're right on. And that's part of when I go and assess the landing. You know, there is no snow that I have to have every time. Every time it's different because the layers are different. Because by the time you're up in the high alpine and you're assessing the snow layers in, you know, 15 feet of base at that point, yep. plus, you know, the last month's worth of storms and those layers, and then the fresh snow, usually, you know, 20 to 40 inches of whatever snow just fell the night before, you have a major uh, interaction with all those layers. So I get down on that landing and I develop a relationship with those layers uh, so that when I know that when I'm going to land in it, I have already developed the dialogue um, with those snow layers because I know I'm going to interact with them. And, you know, some are a little firmer than others, but they're still obviously appropriate. Uh, and some are lighter than others. Um, you know, I've, I've encountered a wide range, you know, and uh, sometimes there's even what you could call a firm layer in, you know, the, the like eight feet of unobstructed snowpack. There might be a layer that you have to like tap your pole against and then you get through it. Whereas yeah. most people would feel that and be like, oh, I'm out of here. But then you probe down underneath that layer and there's another, you know, 10, 15 feet of snow with no obstruction. Um, you know, like, uh, I think it was in like 09 or something. I did a 140 footer at the U S free skiing nationals and, you know, the biggest cliff ever done in a competition. And that one, <clears throat> the landing did have a bit of a firm layer and it was the first time I'd ever encountered that. But like I said, you could get through that firm layer with a good little lean on your pole, and then it was all good underneath that layer. And I was getting really tripped up on it. And so for two days leading up to my run, I didn't know. I was stuck in that limbo of spiritually connecting to it. And then I remember a couple years before that, I'd seen some footage of uh, Simon Dumont overshooting a 100 foot park jump up at park city it was like eight in the morning yeah you if you can remember that he ended up like i mean he overshot it by like so far he went so big it was like so, i don't know what he, i mean it was a wild project and obviously that guy's the man but yeah it was like 7 30 in the morning in the shade and he fell from like 100 feet in the air to ice <sighs> and he broke his spleen and fractured a vertebrae all this stuff and I was like, that's how you get hurt. I'm like, I'm still landing on a, you know, slope. The That little layer, by the speed of which when I come to contact with the snow, I'm not even going to feel that layer. That layer is going to not even exist. Mm -hmm. I don't need to worry about that at all. You don't get hurt by hitting a tiny little layer with 15 feet more of soft snow underneath it. Mm -hmm. You get hurt by falling 100 feet on ice. So that epiphany just gave me that final, 
connectivity. And I went up and, you know, had already pre-lived the experience and it was kind of crazy doing it during a competition because I was so used to doing this stuff out in the middle of the backcountry where you're just with a couple buddies and the camera guys. So to all of a sudden do it and land, you know, I, I remember just hearing all this like craziness where it like sounded like I just drained a three pointer to like win a NBA <laughs> finals or something. And then all of a sudden I like snapped out of it a little bit and I was like, Oh yeah, I'm in a contest right now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> The what you said first about relaxing, that's crucial. Um, you have to be at absolute maximum as if you're about to fall asleep laying on a beach chair, you know, on a perfect afternoon. No no worries at all, just like the most relaxed you've ever been. Like that's how relaxed you have to be. And you know, that's obviously an interesting space to exist in those three to two to three four seconds in the air by the time you come to the end of those two or three seconds you've already entered a time warp you know those two or three four seconds believe me it's i know that time is a weird concept because i've lived Hmm. many 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 rich experiences in two to three seconds that can only be explained by a time portal because I'll have all kinds of internal dialogue, multiple streams of dialogue, fully thought out and comprehended streams of dialogue in those two or three seconds in my head that I'm aware of while it's happening. And I know that it's only two or three seconds. And I'm thinking about that while I'm having all these multiple conversations. It's this crazy time warp. But by the time you get to the end of that experience, supreme relaxation. Um, and it, you know, The way you can think of it is if you have a balloon and it's full of air, and you jump on top of it, on top of the ground, it's going to pop. But if you have a balloon that's completely empty, and you jump on the ground, the balloon's fine. So it's the same thing with your body. You know, you, you have oxygen, you have air, you have um, fluids, you have all these things in your body. And so you need them to not be tensed up. Mm-hmm. Even your muscles or your, you know, your blood flow, your, you know, you have so many things in your body that if you tense any of them up, it's going to pop. And so you have to be absolutely relaxed. And like I said, it's, that's part of the mental uh, fierceness um, to proceed down these paths. And that's where I think most people get tripped up on because when they see a lot of this stuff, it's a reflection of their own viewpoint and their own uh, inability to understand that there's a lot of soul and a lot of depth and a lot of intimate knowledge that it takes to proceed. Um, And unfortunately, if a lot of those people did try, they would get hurt or they would get seriously broken off. So anyway, yes, (laughs) being supremely relaxed is super important. (laughs) Okay, last question on this. Have you ever had a jump where you thought, shit, I should have already landed and then started to tense. You know what I mean? Just once, just once. And it was the biggest cliff I've done in Switzerland, that 210-footer. The biggest cliff I'd done up to that point was 175 feet. And I'd done, you know, probably six or seven that were around 120, 130, and 150 and the one in Switzerland, I thought it looked around the same size as the 175 footer. Hmm. 
and you know, I spent a month skiing in Engelberg, and I'd been looking at this cliff my whole trip. I'd spent so much time studying it, and it just wasn't good enough, and so close. We were jumping like 50-footers, 70-footers, 80-footers all over the place, and this one in particular, just the snow wasn't quite there. And then, it, of course, luckily, two days before we left, absolute blizzard, shut down the whole mountain for a day, and then our last full day there, you know, we get the early gondola up and I go straight to that cliff because you know it just snowed 40 50 inches on top of already pretty good snow that we've been jumping all kinds of other cliffs into so I knew I was going straight for that that cliff and uh, that was really wild mental preparation because the the ski in to that cliff um, took uh, I, there was no way to get in there to make like a cool in run and develop that relationship with the cliff uh from the point of exit you had to enter and ski a line essentially to get to the exit point and so that made the cliff in itself interesting to study in like trajectories and landings i had to study my horizon points for landmarks and all that stuff so that i knew that when i was up there skiing down i had to look out to the horizon with my landmarks from when i was down in the landing figuring things out and also turning around and looking at the horizon so that I could align my trajectory with a horizon mark um, so that when I was up on the takeoff, obviously it looks like you're heading towards the edge of the world and I knew looking out at the horizon for my landmarks that I'd already pre-established. So I had all these things going on, skiing the line, really intense, um, lots of slough, got off the cliff. There's basically like a waterfall of slough coming off to the right and I knew I needed to go left. So I'm in the air, I'm in the sky. There's a, basically looks like an avalanche coming down, all the slough that had been coming down because I'd been mm -hmm. skiing this whole line down to it. And um, I don't know, people, it was, it won like photo of the year for Powder Magazine. It's a really intense photo because it looks like there's just an avalanche coming off and I'm in the sky out to the side <laughs> and it's just it's impossibly big. But, um, Anyway, when I got off that cliff, I had set the front flip a little bit more through my hips versus swan diving for an indefinite amount of time. And I just, like I said, assumed it was around the 170 mark. But as soon as I got into the air, instantly I was like, wow, like this cliff is way bigger than anything I've ever been off of. Mm -hmm. um, and to see from the height of 170 feet, was already intense enough. So if you can imagine me coming off a cliff and being struck with the scale of how high I was in the air and this avalanche coming off and realizing that I'd set my front flip a little bit too early mm -hmm. um, instead of swan diving and tucking it over, I did tense up. And I even had a couple breaths of, uh, you know, if you jump into cold water, and yep. you have the, <laughs> yep. I, ha I actually did a few hyperventilation, uh, like I started freaking out, like, oh my God, I'm going to die kind of. And instantly I was like, no, just calm down, slow this front flip down and do everything you can in your power to survive essentially and to land in a way that you're going to be okay. And I was able to convert that really insane moment of hyperventilation and uh you know that struck in feeling of 
I'm going to over-rotate and crush myself right now. You know, that was like this panic of emotion that went through me. And I was able to slow down the cliff, and instead of over-rotating, I just turned inwards a little bit. So I still did my perfect execution of a front flip, but instead of over-rotating, I rotated inward. So instead of landing in the manner of, you know, back to butt to hamstrings to skis, I landed like shoulder to almost front of stomach to side of thighs, knees, and then into skis. So it was still fine, I, and I achieved that ultimate relaxation. Um, and if I wouldn't have on that one in particular, I would have definitely had some internal issues. Um, so I was completely fine, and it was such a crazy experience. I mean, I was just laughing, um, and a ski had fell off in the landing so unfortunately, I couldn't just like get up and ski off. But uh, my my safety person, I always have a safety person to come uh, in case I get buried in like a bomb hole or something. Yeah. And he comes skiing down to me, and there's still a bunch of like smoke in the air from where I landed, and the slough coming off was so there's a lot of smoke. And he skied up to me, and I couldn't hear it, but the radio was like, "Are you okay?" Everyone's freaking out, and I'm just I was just laughing. Because it was such an intense four seconds of my life, and and uh, all I could do was laugh, you know. And uh, I definitely won't ever forget that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt you will. Wow. So yeah, that was one time that, and part of it too is like the the protocol. I've had all my checklist. Uh, I've, I've checked all my checklists off. I've even hit the moment of being spiritually good to go. And then still just something doesn't feel right. Um, and I won't do it. Even if I, you know, hiked six hours to getting out in the location, we got filmers out there. It's only happened a few times, but it has happened to me where everything is good. Everything's ready to go. Everything's perfect. And for whatever reason, there's just something I can't calm down about. And to me, I think that's just my, something isn't right. I don't know what that is, but I listen to it, you know, and I walk away from projects even when I've poured so much energy into assessing them and deeming them to be good to go and then feeling like I'm there and then just something isn't right, you know? Hmm. But I will say, I think part of that comes from uh, earlier on in my career, I, I shattered my femur in 11 pieces once and that was just skiing. I found this really cool kind of double shoot kind of cliffy thing and it was really technical just high speed skiing that you picked your feet up over a couple of cliffs and I did it and aced it uh, earlier in the day and I came back to it later in the day and didn't really concentrate just dropped in on it assumed took it for granted and you know obviously paid the price but after I did phys the crazy amount of physical therapy to to be 100% the next year I just made this promise to myself that if, you know, it's 99.9999% good, just you have to have that 100% absolute clear um, comfortability. Like you can't proceed doing anything if something doesn't feel right. So it's kind of funny because that discipline led into me doing my first big cliffs because I had thought them through. And I was 100%. And it was kind of funny because I was like, well, I made a promise that, you know, if I had it figured out, then I'd do it. And I was like, so <laughs> hmm. 
I got, I got to do it and, and mm-hmm. I'm going to be safe and I'm going to be all right. And so I don't know if I would have had the mental perspective without that injury to fiercely assess the way I do, uh, to have that supreme clarity, you know? Yeah. So it's, I mean, I guess the lesson there is even if everything, all the, all the boxes are checked off, it's everything is greenlit. The last component is that intuition. I guess what you learned was you don't discount your, your mindset. If, if you're still having the reservation, it's a no-go. Exactly. And it's just the same thing as anybody when, you know, trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Just it's that same thing. Like, I think we're just, we have a lot of, you know, we perceive and process, I think, quite a bit on a level that we're not even aware of as humans. So I think when you do trust your gut, obviously you're using some kind of sensor mechanism that we Mm -hmm. haven't been able to comprehend and articulate. But I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely, we're sensing a lot as humans. So I think, you know, the body speaks to you in ways that even though you can't, you don't know what it means. It's like, you gotta listen to it. Well, to bring this back a bit, um, because we've now gone from talking about big mountain cirque running events to world record cliff jumping. But obviously one of the things that ties these things together is we are talking about moving in the mountains. And it's funny, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this as, you know, as I'm kind of thinking about my own relationship, you know, with running and with skiing. And I remember, you know, seeing when you were starting uh this Cirque series and these running events, just thinking that was so odd because we're used to seeing, right? Like big mountain skiers, like there seems to be a more common connection, like, oh, you big mountain ski, uh, then you probably also mountain bike. Or, you know, I think in the last five years or so, we've seen more skiers um, get into climbing, you know, sport climbing or trad climbing or whatever. And you seem to be one of the kind of exceptions where it's like, why is this skier dude talking so much about running? And I think the more I've heard you talk about like, look, it's just another way to one, be in the mountains, but two, experience the mountains and learn how to move in the mountains. Absolutely. Um, the, the original inspiration, you, you nailed it on the head because in my off season, I did used to main bike. Um, mm-hmm. And five years ago, I got, or six years ago, I got this amazing dog. Uh, <laughs> she's this great dog. She's an Argentinian dogo. And she essentially looks like a tall, streamlined, white pit bull. And she is, you know, 99% just sweetheart trail companion, absolute mountain lion, and 1% just like total maniac, you know, (laughs) like they're bred to hunt wild boars and wild pumas in packs. So she has this insane background and obviously needs. So when I first got her, I took her on mountain bike rides and we're doing these 14 mile, 20 mile bike rides and she's loving it. And at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is cool, but she is like a five-month-old puppy. This is not sustainable. And 
at the time I lived, you know, by the mouth of, uh, or by the trailhead of Mount Olympus, like I mentioned. And so, uh, basically to make her happy, I was like, well, I'll just go hike Mount Olympus a few nights a week and that should make her stoked. And, uh, right out of the gate, luckily my buddy that does forest firefighting, he was like, yo, if you can get to the stream, which is about halfway in under 30 minutes, that's like our cutoff to be a forest firefighter, part of our training. So you should see if you can do it in 30 minutes. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm in shape. I got this. And <laughs> the next time I went out, I timed myself and it was like 31 minutes. And I was like so pissed because, I mean, my head was down and I was charging up that mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I was so pissed. And I'm kind of glad I didn't get under 30 because it really lit a fire under me. And so I started just doing it like four or five nights a week. I was hiking Olympus and I was starting to run it in spots, trying to shave off time. And I was obviously just going so much that I was getting in like the best shape of my life. And oftentimes going at sunset or sunrise and just seeing the, you know, the Salt Lake Valley and that particular hike, there's so much cool variation in the landscape and I mean, it's just like this rich experience I was having. And I'm like, man, this is cool. Um, and I try to invite my friends and they're like, ah, I don't run. And I'm like, believe me, it's not running. Like, this is <laughs> awesome. We are charging up a steep mountain as fast as you can and getting annihilated. Um, but to the point where it doesn't put you down for a couple of days, you're, you're fine, you know. And... From doing that, I started whittling away, and they were like, oh, well, the, our best time, you know, his time was like 24-something, uh, my buddy Nick Cook, and then another friend of mine, Rich Peterson, was like, yeah, I was like the high 23s, and I was just like mind blown. I'm like, how are they so fast, you know? So that was like spring. Fast forward to fall, after a whole six months of hiking that thing, like four or five times a week. Plus learning about Grandeur Peak and Beacon Peak and Black Mountain and Pfeifferhorn and Lone Peak and Dromedary and Lake Blanche and all these cool peak hikes around this valley. I just completely fell in love with peak hiking um, in the Wasatch Front and uh, in particular Mount Olympus. And uh, I eventually, by the the night before our first snowfall, I was like, all right, I'm going to break 24 minutes and I'm going to break my buddy's time because, you know, obviously amongst friends, it's fun to be friendly competitive and I wanted to beat their time. So the storm was coming in. It was like November 2nd or something like they, you know, projected, you know, 20 inches in the benches or whatever, you know, those big storms that come through in the Salt Lake Valley. And so it was the last time I knew for the entire winter that there was going to be zero snow in the benches would be my last chance to go hike Olympus until the spring. So I just went up there and it was all moody and mysterious and the storm front coming in and just put a hoodie on and just charged and got up there to the stream. I did it in 2251. And I was so stoked because I beat both their times. And I was just so happy. I was in the best shape of my life. I do this like ski conditioning class every year. And I entered the class way more in shape than I'd ever even exited it. I was feeling so good just on top of the world. And then um, that spring, my buddy Parker Cooks, his wife Kate was like, hey, uh, you know, I see her always trail running, um, and she does like marathons and stuff. She's like, there's this really cool race down in Southern Utah. Um, 
I want, you know, come, come do it with me. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, I kind of like going up mountains. And she's like, well, I already registered you and Parker. We're going to go camping, so you should just come. So I'm like, all right. So I go down there, and, you know, it's a pretty cool race. There's, there's a good three or 400 people, and there's a six-mile, um, a nine-mile, and a 16-mile option. And, you know, maybe four or 500 feet of elevation change. It was just running along the Amasa uh, Ridge there in Moab. And it was just beautiful, you know. So we do it. I do the six-mile version because that's like, to me, like I like that length. Um, and I was pretty pumped. I got second in it. And we, our car is like the only car that pulled up our like, you know, backed in, did our tailgate and like had beers and cheers people across the finish line and there was like zero brands um they did their little awards ceremony and i got like a ten dollar gift certificate to the local coffee shop and i was just like man these people everyone here is dying to have a good time like what a massive missed opportunity you know so that's what kind of got my interest uh, well, number one, I thought I was pretty fast at the time, but as I've learned in the mountain running world, uh, I'm very average. There are the most freak show superhumans in the mountain running space that it is, you know, half inspiring and half really <laughs> soul crushing. But um, at the time I was like, well, sweet, I can be like a maybe a sponsored trail runner in the off season. I'm going to go see what other races are out there, you know, cause I thought I was hot shit for getting second in this trail race. And, uh, and, but it all, you know, it was a culmination, not just of the race, but the, the prize was so lackluster for how much the registration was. And for all the hundreds of people there, there was nothing going on, uh, besides the race itself. And I was like, wow, what a massive missed opportunity. And, so to me, I was like, well, there's got to be more trail races that are like going up Mount Olympus, you know? So like I said earlier in our conversation, that was what I originally uh, was interested in was a race similar to hiking an iconic peak that was under 10 miles. And uh, like I said, nothing was out there. But what got me going in converting off of mountain biking, you know, was getting my dog Lexi and getting addicted to hiking with her and yeah. it's cool now because in our races uh we do the whole award ceremony we kick it off with the middle of the pack award so we give uh three boxes of kodiak pancakes they're one of our sponsors so we give them a bunch of kodiak for whoever finishes dead middle so we bring them up first and then we do you know we have the sport category which is our like the beginner intermediate then the experts for guys like me and then the pros um and then we do Peak Freak. So we reward the man and woman that gets to the top the fastest. And then we have the Kamikaze Award. And for those of the people that go from the top to the bottom the fastest. And then the final award of the whole thing is the Lexi Award. And the Lexi Award is like the unofficial MVP of the race. So just for something cool that catches my eye or is brought to my attention, I'll bring up somebody that for whatever reason they're just the bomb and so it's like the cool culminating thing to the whole race is the lexi award and i tell everybody that it wasn't for my amazing dog lexi the races would have never happened and so this is the spirit of the races are in honor of my amazing dog and then i proceed to bring up whoever it is for whatever reason but 
Lexi is, is the legend. And if it was, it's just so funny, like these strange things in life that lead down a path. You know, it's just funny that if I, and getting Lexi in itself was such a strange story. But hmm. so the fact that the Cirque Series would not be here if I did not get my dog Lexi. <laughs> Anyways, I'd still be mountain biking probably in the summertime if I hadn't gotten my dog and the Cirque Series would not be around. <laughs> That's great. What a great story. Um, well, man, we should, we should get going, but, um, man, before, before we break, I, um, I want to offer some congratulations. Uh, you, among everything else you're up to, uh, you started a company called discreet, which I believe is now it's, we're getting them on the 10 year anniversary. Yeah. Aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Um, so congrats, congrats on that. And what, tell us, tell us about discreet. What's, what's going on with the company these days? Uh, I'll try to be brief, but you know, <laughs> essentially we went, my ultimate vision with discreet was just to be a really cool beanie, um, kind of, you know, neck buff, uh, clothing company, if you will, but really specialize in the headwear category and make great hats and beanies. And, and we've succeeded. Um, you know, four or five years ago, we were in 150 plus storefronts. Uh, we had all these great things going in this traditional uh, landscape for being a, a retail brand and, you know, conducting business with 15 different international distributors. I had eight reps uh, domestically and um, was not selling from our website. But obviously, as we all know, in the retail landscape, things have shifted dramatically. So from going to managing this giant team of reps and distributors and attending three different trade shows a year and having this really uh, disciplined timeline for our um, supply chain and deliveries and net payment on all these hundreds of accounts, um, in a you know industry that's quite hard and you know it's just this like insane difficult uh, cycle of which we are experiencing growth as a company which was really cool each year but we're getting paid on all this business literally like six to nine months or never from a lot of these shops because they were going under because um, it's such a tough landscape so now um, we just do business our exclusive retailers zoomies and then we do everything else direct sales from our website and we're building a, a great email list getting bigger and bigger and just do awesome info and offer some deals through our email marketing uh very minimally and still make the best beanies and the best neck buffs and you know good line of flannels and hoodies and t-shirts and just try to be in my opinion a really cool company that's like understated at the time when i founded it i thought that all the companies out there especially in the ski world had lightning stripes and flames on it i'm like man where's like the like levi's of the ski world something that's just really plain and, and elegant and simple so that's kind of the cornerstone to our branding is just clean and solid colors mostly and earthy tones and make really nice uh, understated, but really quality product. And, uh, we're achieving that. Um, and having direct sales through the site is awesome because it helps with that cash flow difficulty we were having by having to pay for all of our supply chain and not getting paid on anything until, like I said, net 
30, he's net 60, net 90, or net never with a lot of these shops. So, um, and the, the work workload, going from managing this giant orchestration of trade shows and reps and uh, international distributors and sell samples and catalogs and the whole gamut to simplifying and having a lot of the things digitized now and just doing our own uh, packing facility and having a great shipping warehouse manager and handling that all ourselves and having Zoomies, our exclusive retailer. Um, it's really nice on the, on the narrow narrowing of the workflow plus the cash flow is a lot better because we're getting um, most of our business through our website which is you know immediate infusion of the money which is important um, and then the private label business you know each year since the beginning we'd make like some branded goods or co-branded goods for a couple ski shops here and there or, you know you know just kind of doing cool products for a couple companies here and there and then part of me a few years ago being like man like we're killing it but this whole cash flow thing is so hard each year i was like we gotta like maybe we can do more private label so we started leaning into the private mm -hmm. label and that now is as much revenue um as our inline business and that also mm -hmm. is great with the cash flow because those are project by project basis and we're cranking them out and we have a great manufacturer and we're able to do these highly detailed uh, custom jobs in only quantities of 100 whereas for the type of customization and quality that we do most factories won't touch it unless it's 500 or a thousand minimum and so that has taken off for us so and part of me when I created Cirque series you know obviously everything we've talked about and all the inspiration points and also part of it was you know, discreets a seasonal business, especially back then, you know, and I was yeah. like, we got to have something that's really cool in the summertime um, that can even out our cash flow cycle. So part of the strategy was the Cirque series being part of that, you know, off season um, event production that could help out. So between the Cirque series success, the private label coming out kind of out of nowhere, and then our uh, digitation and direct sales uh, strategy that we're doing uh, discrete you know, as a whole uh, is really kind of neat that it's establishing itself in a, in a manner that it's healthy and stabilized and the, uh, like you mentioned and like I've said it's another extension of loving the mountains you know it's another creative way to be connected to the community um, and so I could go on and on but uh that's kind of what's going on with Discreet, and I have some amazing people that help out and the employees, and uh, it's it's a really fun, simple, lean little program we got, but I still think we got the greatest beanies, and we'll continue doing that, and I'm not, you know, trying to develop Discreet into becoming this global powerhouse of whatever, you know, like I want to be a rad outdoor company that makes great headwear, and that's what we're going to continue to do. Hmm. Well, very good. And um, yeah, again, uh, congrats on 10 years. And it's been fun watching Discrete grow and evolve. And um, here's to another great 10 years. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, hey, we should get going. Um, there are definitely a number of other questions uh, that would be fun to, uh, to ask you about. But I think we may... Um, Maybe we'll just punt to uh, another time down the line. Um, but uh, 
you know, I guess three pretty seemingly different uh, things we've covered from from a company called Discrete to a big mountain running series to uh, major cliff jumping. But um, I think you've uh, you've you've threaded the needle well and kind of tied it all together in a way that uh, I think your your life actually kind of makes some sense, Julian. <laughs> well, thanks. There's definitely <laughs> overlap, and to me, it's a nice seamless integration. Um, but it is kind of weird from afar to see how compartmentalized it all is. And if you would have told me five years ago, I'd have a mountain running series, I'd be like, what? <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm into it. Thanks, man. It's, yeah, yeah. This has been great. And um, yeah, you take care and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, man. Have a good one. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Julian Carr for the conversation. And be sure to check out all of the dates and locations of the Cirque Series races over at CircSeries.com. Thanks also to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. And if you haven't done so already, Go check out our latest All Things Climbing podcast, hosted by our climbing editor, Dave Alley, because he has a great conversation with the extremely badass and extremely interesting trad climber, Nick Berry. Thanks, everybody. Take care, and we will talk to you again quite soon.